We are quickly coming to the end of our journey through the sermon or the letter, however you want to take it, of James. And my continual prayer is that it has been meaningful for you and insightful and helpful and timely, as I think it is in so many ways. We've got three more weeks together, including today in James, and uh, his messages are still um, abrupt. Is that a fair way to talk about James? Uh, And powerful. And today he wants to, in essence, begin closing his letter by getting back to some of the themes of the opening chapter. If you remember in the opening chapter, James talked about enduring trials and overcoming temptations. And he's going to get back to some of that language today and talking about and calling us to a gospel-centered patience. So James chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters. Remember, uh, in the last couple of weeks when he's been very forceful in his arguments, he hasn't been using the words brothers and sisters. And now he's kind of getting more endearing again. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Word of God through the messenger James for us. His call is to be patient. So what does he mean when he asks us to be patient? Well, we need to pause and remember the context in which this letter is being written. The context always helps us. So James is writing to a scattered group of Jewish background believers in Jesus who because of the persecution that has come on the church uh, after the stoning of Stephen, if you remember in the book of Acts, are now find themselves outside of Jerusalem, perhaps back in the land that they came from, or perhaps in a brand new land, but outside a lot of the oversight of the leaders of the early church, on their own and in a somewhat fragile place. And in fact, they find themselves in some ways the victim of oppression, whether it's ongoing persecution for their faith in Jesus, or whether it's simply that they don't possess the resources that they need to be brokers of power in the society of the day. A lot of the stuff we talked about last week, that they're getting taken advantage of by those in power. And so James now says to them, uh, and if you've ever heard someone talk to you about a deep struggle they've been going through, uh, one of the things you probably have learned not to say to them, because you don't want to be overly trite, unless you you have a super gentle way of saying it, I don't, is, well, just be patient, right? Because it's like, ugh. But in essence, this is what James has chosen to say to these people, right? Well, just hang in there. Just be 
patient. This word patient is a fascinating word. It's a compound word in the original language. Macrothumos, uh, the, word, the, the, the word macro, right? We understand that in our language. Macro versus micro, big or long versus small and specific. Uh, the word thumos is a fascinating word. It actually means like an eruption of passion or perhaps an outburst of anger, right? And so you put them together, and it kind of has this idea of holding your outbursts for the long haul, right? In other words, keeping your passion contained for the long goal, taking the long view of things. So perhaps we could define patience this way. I think this is helpful for us. Patience, in the biblical sense that James gives it to us, is the ability to bear the personal effects of this broken world. The ability to bear the personal effects of this broken world. Let's think about this definition for a minute. Personal effects. What do we mean by that? Well, James is specifically talking about the, the stuff, right, that we've got to go through or deal, deal with, that maybe we haven't even brought on our selves, the baggage that comes with living in this world, the pain, the heartbreak, the, the, the abuse or the, <coughs> excuse me, the trauma that, that some of us have endured, the personal effects of living in a broken world. A broken world specifically meaning this context of our world in general, but also the people therein and what people tend to do to other people. Does this make sense? That we sometimes are either caught in the crossfire or are the bullseye, the intended target of the brokenness of other people in this world. And unfortunately, oftentimes other people are the target of our own particular brokenness. It's painful to live in a broken world. So, if it's personal effects in a broken world, then let's think about the word bear, right? The ability to bear. What are we talking about here? Specifically, we're talking about to not respond in kind, right? To not retaliate in the way that it has been done to you. Or to endure or to take it. Or perhaps a strong biblical word here, to learn how to forgive sometimes even when forgiveness wasn't asked of us, and oftentimes when forgiveness is unrequited. These are extraordinarily hard things. I'm not trying to give them to you in a simplistic way. Yet James is saying this is a key to the Christian life, to be patient. Where does this patience come from? How could we even begin to conjure up this kind of ability to bear the personal effects of the brokenness of this world? And the most important thing to say, and of course we remember that James is constantly drawing on the teachings of Jesus. Jesus talks about this often through many of his parables. Uh, that our patience or our ability to be patient, our ability to forgive, comes directly from our experience of forgiveness or patience from God to us. That is, any ability that we have to bear or endure or be patient or forgive is directly related to 
our personal experience of being endured or being forgiven or being bared with and chiefly from God Himself. Jesus tells a pretty famous parable in the Gospel of Matthew uh, about a landowner who comes back to see what's happening in his land. Uh, This is how the story goes. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Uh, The lead into this, Peter has asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive, right? Because Peter's a good religious guy, just like the rest of us. Just tell me the quota, I'll fill it, then I can live my way, right? And Jesus is like, "Mm, take your number and multiply it by seven. In other words, saying, yeah, there's no no quota. Therefore, this is the parable he goes on to explain that. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Listen to what he said. What did he say? Be patient with me. Bear with me. Endure with me. See the long game. And I will pay back everything. And listen to the master's response. The servant's master took pity on him. This word took pity will show up in the very last verse that we read in the the passage of James. That's often translated compassionate or mercy. It actually means taking pity. And canceled the debt He wasn't even waiting for it to be paid off in the long haul. He canceled it and let him go. Astonishing. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, far less than 10,000 bags of gold. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. What's the word? Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But the man refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This, Jesus says, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister. Listen to that last little phrase just to dig in deeper. From your Heart. Incredible. Bold language from Jesus. In essence, we can see this in a cosmic scope. That God, as the, the owner and master of all things, comes back uh, to see what is happening in His land and in His dominion. And He finds a worker unable to pay, which would be the entirety of our world. And God, because of the character that He has, is willing to forgive 
all of the debt. And yet, we have many who in response to that live exactly the opposite. What is the point that Jesus is trying to make? That those who have truly, honestly, or to use Jesus' words, in your heart or from your heart, embraced the forgiveness that God has offered, have a transformed ability to offer forgiveness, to be patient, not in perfection because we are not God Himself, but a complete lack of desire and or ability to live in patience or to live in forgiveness or to extend it in some way is testimony of a heart that actually hasn't fully embraced the Gospel. Does this make sense? Where does patience come from? Where does forgiveness come from? It is directly related to our personal experience of patience or forgiveness from God. In so much as we have truly and honestly embraced that Gospel truth, our hearts are being, listen to me, are being, not fully, transformed in a way to live in this same manner. How does James have the nerve to ask his people to be patient in the midst of what they're enduring? Well, easy answer, because Jesus said the same thing. right? But digging a little deeper, because it's what it means to be transformed by the Gospel. It is a profound means in which the Gospel is actually proclaimed to the world. But James goes a step farther. There's a particular anchor that he's holding on to in this passage of Scripture and that he wants his audience and us to hold on to as well. And it's the soon return of Jesus. Right? It's said oftentimes throughout this short passage of Scripture that, that the judge is standing at the door, that, that Jesus' return is, is near, that, that our Lord is coming back. And of course, this is a central doctrine of the Christian faith. You cannot be a Christian without also believing that Jesus is coming back to set all things right and to restore all things in the way that God has intended. And that inherent in that idea is that, that all the brokenness of this world is finally going to be dealt with in a way that honors and glorifies God. And James is saying there's a direct correlation not just between your embrace of your forgiveness that enables you to forgive or be patient, but also a direct correlation in your true belief in the return of Jesus to set all things right to your ability to breathe and be patient in the now. We don't just conjure it up. It comes from deeply held beliefs that are core and central to who we are. But this is not just some esoteric, spiritual, otherworldly, cross our fingers, pray really hard, and hope to be patient. James gives us some important handles in this passage of Scripture. I want to suggest there are four of them that show us how we can cooperate with this transforming work of God in our hearts 
to, to grow in our patience and to grow uh, even in our forgiveness. The first way that James says it is the word wait. That we grow in patience through learning how to wait. Now you would say, well, those are the same exact words. And fair enough, but they're actually not. We often hear the word wait as something deeply passive, don't we? And so if you are naturally action-oriented like me, there's probably no more offensive word in the English language than wait. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait for anything, right? There's a reason it's called fast food. That means there shouldn't be three cars in front of me in the drive-thru line. That's highly inappropriate, right? That's how we live. I don't want to wait, right? Villanova, my favorite team, won last night. I don't want to wait another week to the Final Four. It should happen tomorrow, right? This is how we live in our world and, and especially how I live. But James is saying, no, no, wait's actually super important and it's actually not passive. It's actually quite active. There are two words that are translated wait uh, in, this passion, in this passage and both of them are active words. The first word is the Greek word ekdekomai, and it means actually to, dekomai means to welcome, ek means like out of or from. It's like to, to welcome. This is a posture of being ready to welcome something. And of course, in context, who do we know that we're supposed to be ready to welcome, right? It's the soon return of Jesus. So it's a posture of steadfast expectation, right? It's not just a waiting and we'll see what happens kind of deal. No, it's a certainty that when Jesus comes, He will set all things right. An utter confidence that this is right. And a hope placed in that that then does not need personal reaction or response to make things better in the moment. That's what James is saying. The second word translated wait is the word lumbano. It simply means to take. Right? That seems like the exact opposite of wait, does it not? But he's saying to taking hold of this hope, right? this certainty. There's a reason why our church is called hope, not just because it's a cool Christian word, but because at the core of the gospel is this idea of hope. That our true faithful response to the validity of the gospel is a posture of hope. That says... I'm not going to be able to do anything to bring this to fruition, but I'm certain that it will happen. And so James gives the illustration of a farmer, right? He says, listen, farmers are dependent upon the rains. They can't make it rain, but they're somewhat certain that it's going to happen. They've built their whole profession around it. Uh, and it talks about the earlier and the later rains, of course, in, in the the... The, the weather realities of that day, a late sort of autumn rain was significantly important to the agricultural uh, realities of the day, as well as a early spring sort of April, which we're pretty familiar with around here kind of reality. That those two rains were utterly necessary for a full harvest to happen. And farmers went about their business utterly expecting those to happen even though there was nothing they could do to make it happen. James is saying this is how we live as Christians. We keep planting the seeds. We keep living this kingdom reality even though we're waiting for it in its fulfillment. Why? Because we're nuts? 
No, because we're certain. We're certain that Jesus is coming back to set all things right. See, James is calling us to, much like chapter 1 of this, of this letter, a divine worldview. Seeing the world in the way that God sees it. Taking the long view of things in the restorative and redemptive way that God is working in our world that says that I'm going to actually place my trust and hope in the return of Jesus to set all things right rather than my reactionary response in the moment. It's a profoundly different posture. More so, and and even more centrally important, is the idea that in a divine worldview, I am going to join God in being patient for the full harvest to arrive. Do you notice how James uses this language? He says, just like the farmer is patient, just like the farmer, you too, he says, should be patient. So you could take that as a straight-on analogy. Hey, you be like the farmer, right? But I think James is actually doing something a little bit deeper here because he loves the Old Testament and he writes like the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, the farmer or the, or the, the vineyard owner or, or all of these imageries all point to one person, right? And that person is God Himself. And he speaks of the world or of His people as a vineyard. Israel, all through the, through the, prophet, uh, through the prophecy of Isaiah, is spoken of as a, as a vineyard. There's this idea that, that God is tending to the vineyard, wanting all of the fruit to come to bear before He takes in the final harvest. And so what I want to suggest to you is that certainly James is asking you to be patient for God to redeem all things in so much as it relates to you and the struggles that you are enduring in this season or in the seasons to come. Super important and real. God is going to act redemptively on your behalf. But to be a Christian is not to live in an isolated, individualistic way that says, this whole thing is about God wrapping up things in a way that looks great for me. This whole thing is about God wrapping up things in a way that brings in the full harvest from the world. And sometimes, strike that, all the time, it means we must Join God in being patient. Now the writers of the New Testament understood this in the same way that the prophets of the Old Testament understood this. That God's people tend to get antsy, right? Because we're in. We already have understood the Gospel and embraced it. So wrap all things up already. Bring it on. But that's not how God works. God has a desire that everyone would come to experience and receive the full truth of the Gospel. And so he's constantly asking his people to endure. Why? The main reason is that so the full harvest can come in. Because if God comes now to restore all things, that means those who haven't embraced find themselves still on the outside looking in. And so writers like Peter remind us that God is not slow in keeping his promises. To us. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, Peter writes, as some understand slowness, right? Most of us, if we're being honest, if we put you in a lie detector test right now, if we hooked up the polygraph machine and said, is God moving quick enough for you? 
you'd be forced to answer no, right? I've got a lot of things I'd like to see figured out. And Peter's like, he's not actually moving slow because we don't see the world the same way God sees it. Instead, he's actually patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See what James is asking us to do here is not just wait a couple more cars so you can get your chicken sandwich at Burger King, right? Not just about restoration for you. It's about a cosmic restoration that you're called to be patient for the redemption of other people. And unless you have truly understood the Gospel and the power and the truth of it, that's a really hard ask, isn't it? But James says, those who have embraced the Gospel know this is worth it. To wait means to join with God in being patient. I think we need to understand something. We, we oftentimes think of God, and, and rightly so. I'm not trying to demean this theological representation. I just don't think it's holistic. We often think of God as, we almost think of Him in a deistic sense. Does this make sense? Like, remember like when you're studying the founding fathers in that generation, they're all called deists, and we're like, well, I don't know what that means. I guess they liked God or whatever. Well, deists actually believe that God kind of, there's a God, but He kind of sets things in motion and He's off up in the, in the, you know, the Barca lounger just letting things happen. You know? He's disinterested, disengaged. He's just kind of set things and, and off it goes. And most of us would say that's actually not a fair representation of God. But oftentimes we live as if it is, don't we? Because we have a picture of God as unaffected by the stuff that's affecting us in this world. And if he only knew the pain I was going through. And I would suggest to you a fair and right picture of God is a God who is suffering alongside his people. Who is taking offense after offense after offense at the way people are grabbing to power and acting in rebellion to him and smearing his name and living completely opposite. He's not unengaged or disinterested or living in a a disconnected way. He's taking offenses by the moment. He's enduring alongside of us. It's why Peter uses the word uh, that the Old Testament prophets use of God, that he's patient, that he's holding a rightful response of, 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 um, of anger or wrath for the long haul. God is not off bowling in the clouds, you know? He's deeply engaged in what's going on in our world and suffers right along with us. Now, that does not theologically mean that he's not God in holiness and in perfection. But we would be wrong to think of God as unemotive. It's just not true. It's not who he is. So we're called to wait, to be patient. I need to pause and say something here because it's really important. We don't have time to really pull this out and talk about it at any further length. But waiting does not mean being completely mute, right? It does not mean being completely passive. It does not mean that we don't stand up against or speak against injustice or wrongs or things that are against God's character in our world. It simply means we aren't motivated by the personal offense that we have taken. 
Does this make sense? And it also means that we have understood that it is only through the return of Jesus that all things will be set right. Not through our particular remedies in the moment. James says, wait. Second thing he says is stand firm, or some translations are be steadfast. And this word is actually a, a phrase or, a, word, uh, or a, a saying that has to do with our hearts. It's actually a matter of the heart. Right? It actually, in, if you translate it literally, would say strengthen your hearts. Uh, and it's a fascinating word, this word strengthen. It has to do with being active and, and, and propping up or fortifying, building structures that enable it to stand strong. Again, not twiddling our thumbs or hoping, but being active in it. Uh, when my boys were younger, they were in Cub Scouts. I wasn't a great Cub Scout dad, but they were in Cub Scouts. And one of the things that the Cub Scouts did, maybe you were participated in something like this, was the great egg drop. You ever do the egg drop where you had to build a contraption that would, that would keep the egg safe when dropped from a great height? We didn't even enter <laughs> a possibility because I had no hope of helping them craft something like that. But the ingenuity and the imagination that, 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 that came in this, this, this um, task that was given was fascinating. Do you know what no one did? just went to the top of the ladder and dropped an egg, right? They actually made efforts to build things to fortify them. And James is saying the same thing here. You've got to be active. All too often as Christians, we fall into moments of and seasons and lengthy seasons of complacency. A sense of, well, I've put in my work, I've done my stuff, Things seem to be going good now. And we let our guard down. We stop building and fortifying our hearts. And what we find in those moments is that we are easy prey for the world. Peter reminds us that when we do that, we become what he calls nearsighted. That is, we can only see the things right around us. We can't see the danger that lurks in the distance. And he says, and we end up stumbling. James says, no matter the circumstances of the now, you should be at work fortifying your heart for the long haul. It's a means by which you engage in a posture of patience. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that this language is used all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Peter talks about it. The writer to Hebrews talks about it. Paul talks about it a lot. And in that context, it gives us great understanding through which we can get a picture of how we should be active in fortifying our hearts. Of course, we would be remiss if we didn't use James's singular point to start. That is that a main way that we engage in a posture of patience or fortify our hearts is the return of Christ. And in this particular section, he says that, just remember, the return of Christ is near. Now listen, it's really important to say this, because again, we get complacent, don't we? So people have been saying the return of Christ is near, literally since the days of James, right? Because those people believed it. And Jesus said some things that would lead you to believe it. But Peter reminds us a little bit later, in the same way he did in talking about we don't understand the world the way God does, Peter reminds his readers, too, that 
Listen, to God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. We don't understand time in the way that God understands time. And so theologians have rightly, under, rightly redirected us to talk about the nearness of the return of Jesus in terms of imminency. Does this make sense? That it could happen at any moment. And that with each passing breath, we are closer to that moment, though we don't know when it is. But imminency gives us an urgency, does it not? To, as James would call us here, be at work fortifying our hearts. Paul reminds us in his second letter to the Thessalonians that one of the ways we fortify our hearts is by being deeply gospel-centered people. He says, listen, don't stray from the teachings that have been passed down to you. In so doing, you will be strengthened. Same word he's using there. That regularly, regularly engaging with this gospel truth, the centrality of the person, the work of Jesus, the teachings that make us Christians, not having them far off or just in our brains as things we ascribe to, but regularly internalizing them is a means of fortifying our hearts. In our community group last night in our equipping gathering, we uh, were reminded of why creating a rhythm of life, an intentional plan, is so significant and so important in persevering in this world. And it's a means by which we are regularly interacting with the teachings that have been passed down to us. And Paul goes on in some of his other letters, his first letter to the Thessalonians, as well as his letter to the Romans, to demonstrate to us that a key, profound way that we work to strengthen our hearts is through Christian community, through each other. Paul in 1 Thessalonians says that, listen, I'm stuck here in Athens, and I'm super glad to have Timothy with you, but I'm going to send him to you even while I'm over here in Athens. What was the reasoning for that? So that he can strengthen you. Right, same word. Jesus, when talking to Peter and letting him know he's going to have some massive screw-ups at some inopportune times right around the crucifixion, says, but you are going to strengthen your brothers and your sisters. Luke chapter 22. Super important. Or Paul, when he writes to the Romans, says, listen, I am desperate to come and be with you. Romans chapter 1, verse 11. Purpose? Why? So that by some spiritual gift, I might be able to strengthen you. That somehow in the exercise of our spiritual giftedness, we are strengthening each other. If you are living isolated, uh, American, pull yourself up by your bootstraps lives, let no one in, let no one see, you then are not using all the tools at your disposal for the strengthening of your heart. And things might be going good now, but we tend to be nearsighted. Christian community. And then a final way that we work to strengthen our heart is to have good perspective. Peter, again, reminds us that, listen, you should be strengthened by this important truth. That as you look around the world, many are suffering alongside of you for the glory of God. Is that sometimes our hearts become weak because we are only focused 
on the struggles that we are currently going on and don't see them in dynamic connection to the struggles that are being endured all around the world, past, present, and future, for the glory of God. Be strengthened in your hearts. Two more things that James gives us in terms of being patient people. The third thing he says is don't grumble, right? And of course, we know that not grumbling goes straight along with being patient. But actually, I want to suggest to you that this word translated grumble is actually not a very good translation. Because the word grumble has a profound Old Testament meaning. But when it's being used in that way, there's another Greek word that is typically used. This word that's being used here is actually better translated groan, right? Or sometimes complain. He's saying don't groan particularly against each other. But here's what I want to give you. I want to summarize James's exhortation in this way. Is that we shouldn't say don't grumble, nor should we say, well, you should say don't grumble, but that doesn't pertain here. Nor should we say don't groan, but I want to say to you, we need to learn how to groan properly. (laughs) Because if you read the Apostle Paul, he's constantly talking about groaning and not in an overtly negative way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as he's trying to convince the Corinthian church that they shouldn't give up on him as an apostle of God because he's presently suffering and struggling, he's reminding them that we groan, he calls them, in our earthly tents longing for our heavenly bodies. That in the suffering, in the struggle of this world, we groan inwardly. It's a natural response. He repeats it in Romans chapter 8. It says we are groaning inwardly, longing for the redemption of all things. Now here's where you get to the true biblical sense of groaning. That groaning is not just an internal woe is me or overtly woefulness state of being but it's a lamentation that longs for the return of Christ to set all things right. You see this? But that's what it means to groan. And we would be right in following the Apostle Paul in doing it. So why does James say not to do it? Because the groaning is not done in that way. In James's context, he says don't groan towards each other. In James's context, we're groaning about other people and what they're doing not about the brokenness of this world. Or, could we say it this way? That we are complaining about people, not lamenting the brokenness of people. Profoundly different biblical postures. One is self-rule. The other is kingdom of God. Do you see it? James is saying we need to learn to groan the right way. And then lastly, he says we need to persevere. You say persevere, patience, sounds like the same thing. Yep, pretty much. The word for persevere is the Greek word hupomeno. Meno, a pretty famous word. It means to, to dwell or to, to remain, to stay. Right? And hupo means under. And so you get this idea of standing under even in the midst of pain and struggle. Being unmoving, not turning away even though it's difficult. And James gives us two examples. He says, like the prophets and like Job. Now, the teachings and the narratives about the prophets and about Job are voluminous. We don't have time to get into any of it. 
But can I suggest to you three basic reasons why James would pick those two as examples? The first is pretty obvious. That is that living God's way and speaking God's words is profoundly hard business, right? Things typically don't run smoothly when we're living that way. And you need know very little about the stories of the prophets and Job's to say, yep, I get that. The second thing is that we need to understand that as we're being patient, that sometimes we'll get to see the fulfillment of the thing we're being patient for, and sometimes we won't. Job goes through this whole thing, and at the end of the story, finds some semblance of restoration. The prophets, most of them, don't live to see the thing they're prophesying about. James is saying to persevere sometimes means you don't get to see the thing you're standing waiting for. And then lastly, and really importantly, is that if you read the stories of the prophets and if you read the story of Job, what you find in them is ordinary, typically, not always, pretty good people, right? But people who still tend to get things wrong, right? In other words, they're not perfect illustrations. I love... In this instance, that James didn't say, be like Jesus. He said, be like these guys who, like, depending upon which chapter you're reading, are either hitting home runs or striking out. But what's true of them is they stood their ground and they didn't retreat from their faith and their belief in who God was and what he was up to. And that's what James is saying. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to always have the right response. But be unmoving in your belief in who God is and what He's up to in the world. At the end of the day, how can we even begin to engage in this kind of patience? Patience that waits, that strengthens our hearts, that groans properly, that perseveres. Well, James says that the only way we can even hope to do this is to have a right picture of God. And I love what A.W. Tozer famously said. He said, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. In other words, who you think God is in character is the most important thing about you. Why? Because it determines how you live. If you believe that God is short-tempered, out to get you, disinterested in the pain and the struggle that you're going through, unengaged in the circumstances of this world, guess what? It's going to be really difficult to persevere for a God like that. But James says there's actually a better view of who God is. And he says two words, full of compassion and merciful. I love these words. He says full of compassion, but you know what the word actually is? Polysplagnos. And you say, well, that's a weird word. Do you know what it means? It means many-boweled. So who is our God? He's the God with lots of bowels. Right? Sell that and see if that is the gospel worth believing. You don't understand, in the first century world, emotions came from the guts. Right? And so he says, who is God? God is full of affection full of love, 
full of compassion. So much so that he doesn't just have one set of bowels to contain them. He's a many-boweled God. And he's merciful. That is, that he takes pity on his people. That's who he is. And that's a God who we can be patient with. Who we can stand our ground for imperfectly. And friends, that is who our God is. How do we know? We know because of Jesus. That our God is not simply a Father who loves us enough to come to the edges of the ground and look for us, but sent His very own Son to find us as a lost sheep, to rescue us, and to return us home. That's the God we worship. Is it hard to exist in this world? Yes. Exceedingly hard, depending upon the seasons we find ourselves in. Don't make light of that. Don't pretend that's not true. Remind yourself of who God is and what He's done and what He's going to do. And stand firm. Can I pray with you?